0: Today we'll be in Philippians chapter 4 and continuing on in verses 6 and 7. I invite you to turn there already. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 4. Well, admittedly, I come before you this morning as a, a weak vessel. I confess that. This week, I have wrestled more, I would say, with the text than I have in my entire time in Philippians. And um, I think the reason why that is, is because of the prevalence of anxiety in our world. The prevalence of anxiety, even among believers, And I found myself needing to admit my lack of compassion at times. My lack of empathy in trying to identify exactly what the struggle is that others are going through. Certainly we all experience anxiety. We all have anxious thoughts. But what we do with them is important. And we know that this world has a lot to say about anxiety, as it too recognizes the reality of anxiety. We see that quite often. It's in the mainstream media. There's a lot of talk of mental health. And so it is something that we often are, are hearing about. But just as the world has a lot to say, glory be to God because the Bible says more. And not only do the scriptures speak authoritatively regarding this human condition, God also offers the cure. Unlike the band-aid solutions of medical science and modern psychology, that's all they have to offer is a band-aid that you put over the wound. I've been absolutely lambasted for some of my views on this, but I found in those moments that the individuals that have been lambasting me have been using their own experiences to form extra biblical truths that just are not so. And I want us to think biblically because the world, the word, I should say, the word of God transforms lives, does it not? And I think you've come to expect it from this pulpit. So today we'll see from Scripture the distinctly Christian approach to anxiety. Now there's a lot of definitions out there. One dictionary definition defines anxiety this way. It's a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. Modern psychology describes it this way. It's a mental condition characterized by excessive apprehensiveness about real or perceived threats, typically leading to avoidance behaviors and often to physical symptoms such as increased heart rate and muscle tension. And the world of medical science labels anxiety as a medical condition that presents itself through physiological fight-or-flight responses. Personally, I would submit to you this definition. I would say that anxiety is a worry or negative concern over a current or future circumstance. Or circumstances that are outside of one's control. One biblical commentator describes anxiety as an inappropriate response in light of the circumstances. While another says worry is sin. A concern that tears the person apart. And we can notice in all of these definitions that there are both similarities and differences. All agree that anxiety is a negative worry or concern regarding something in the immediate future. But they differ, they differ in this. Some say it's some think it's a, a feeling. Others say it's a mental condition, so it's psychological. While the medical world says that, no, it's physiological, it's a medical condition. And others say it's a behavior. And it's because it's behavioral, it's behavioral even to the extent of being sin. But I would submit to you that we ought to have Scripture inform our convictions surrounding anxiety so... Let's read the text that's before us this morning. I'll begin in verse 4. We were in verses 4 and 5 last week, but there's a flow here to the text. And so let's read Philippians chapter 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Now, you'll recall the historical background. Epaphroditus' report provided Paul the insights that he needed to now address this matter of anxiety in Philippi. You'll remember that there were threats of persecution. He told them not to be alarmed by their opponents in chapter 1 and verse 28. And at the same time, you'll remember as we were going through chapter 1 that suffering was a grace gift given by God. God was graciously allowing them to suffer for the sake of Christ as these opponents were coming up against them. There was also the threat of pride and ambition. Paul had firsthand knowledge of rivalry among believers. You remember him saying in chapter 1 and verse 15, some were preaching Christ even from envy and strife. But that didn't faze Paul. Why? Because Christ was still being proclaimed, and in this he rejoiced. And the Philippians too. They were witnessing rivalry between these two women that we've heard about recently. And that threatened unity in the local church. There were also, there was also the threat of false teachers, those that were of the false circumcision in chapter three and verse two, who placed their confidence in the flesh, who were promoting a works-based righteousness. While others, we can, we can imply this from the text, others obviously were thinking that they had already achieved perfection and so Paul addresses that as well so there was false teaching false teachers coming up against the church and then finally we can also see that there was an ongoing material need in Philippi and so Paul encouraged them in chapter 4 and verse 19 he said my God will supply all your needs there were needs and each one of these, each one of these, was raising, could potentially raise anxiety in the lives of believers in Philippi. Now, neither Paul nor the Philippians had the privilege of seeking counsel via Google. And this week I spent just a, a few moments on the Anxiety and Depression Association of America's webpage. And so, Paul and the Philippians didn't have these coping mechanisms for anxiety. They didn't know to take a time out through yoga or music or massage. They didn't know that they were to eat well and limit alcohol and caffeine, get a good night's sleep and exercise daily, take deep breaths and count to 10 slowly, or just simply do your best. I like that one. Do your best. They also say that we are to welcome humor. And I thought back to Reader's Digest. I don't know if it's still published, but they always had a section in it. Laughter is the best medicine. You may remember that, right? Well, I think Paul offers us better medicine. And it makes me wonder, actually, when I think of humor, I think of some Facebook pages that I see. I wonder if that's really just a cry for help then. As people just post nothing but humorous articles on their facebook pages but these coping mechanisms arise from an unbiblical view of man we need to understand that believing man you see these whether it be modern medicine or modern psychology they just simply believe that man can in some way fix himself and that's just not true it's not true there's a bigger issue at stake And friends, our hearts and our minds don't need further distractions. Our hearts and minds need ongoing transformation. Now, admittedly, both medicine and psychology, these so-called experts, they they seem to be somewhat intuitive because they recognize that there is a problem. There is a problem that even these coping mechanisms just really don't address. And so, some other coping mechanisms that they offer are these accept that you cannot control everything. Now, I think they're onto something, right? They also say learn what triggers your anxiety. And certainly, we should think about that carefully. What are we anxious about? And then they also offer this one talk to someone. That seems to be the same one, the same idea that Paul submits to us here in Philippians. And so these so-called experts are onto something. But what Paul offers us is one single remedy. And you'll remember last week that Paul listed for us six fundamental distinctives of the one whose citizenship is in heaven. And he did this so that Each one of you will know how to stand firm in the Lord while still in this world. And you may remember that we looked at that distinct priority to rejoice in the Lord always in chapter four. We also looked at that distinct poise of letting your gentleness be known to all men, and then having that distinct perspective of of remembering that the Lord is near. Those were the points that we looked at last Sunday. And today, we'll look at a distinct peace, a distinct persistence, and a distinct pledge. And so let's take a look, let's observe this fourth distinction, the distinction of peace in verse six. Train your eyes down at the text again. Be anxious for nothing. Now, notice first that this is a present imperative, it's derived from a Greek noun. Marina or Merima, I should say, and it means anxiety or worry or care. And so literally what Paul is commanding us is you all be anxious. This is the command. That's the injunction governing the Christians' ongoing daily practice. Commands require our obedience. Or we can find ourselves in sin. We know that. But the command is modified by another word. This is important. And it answers for us the question of what are we to be anxious about? Well, he says, nothing. Be anxious not at all. Be anxious in no way. Be anxious not for anything. Do not be anxious about any single thing. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians can't have positive concerns. We see that Paul certainly had positive concerns. We see one of those listed in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 28 and 29, where he writes, after, and he writes this after listing the many hardships that he's faced in his ministry, Paul writes this. He says, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches, Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? And so there is a, I would say, a legitimate and honorable concern that we can have. Even a a sense of legitimate worry, if you want to call it that. Again, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 20, when speaking of Timothy, he says... For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. And so not only was Paul concerned for the churches, so was Timothy. Timothy shared that same concern. And we as Christians should have that legitimately honorable concern as well. And so not all concern, not all of our cares, not all of our worries necessarily are negative. But here in Philippians 4, 6, Paul is speaking of a negative concern, a worry, an anxiety as as it's rendered in the NASB. And anxiety left unresolved or undealt with will certainly lead to further sin. Proverbs 23 in verse 7 says this, for as he thinks within himself, so he is. And this reveals the implications of a sinful thought life, which is, I would submit to you, volitional behavior. It's you determining or deciding to think a certain way in response to something. And that's why we need to watch over our hearts with diligence. One of my former pastors said, whatever has your heart has you. For as he thinks within himself, so he is. But what does Jesus say about anxiety, about worry in Matthew chapter 6? I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. He has a lot to say at the end of the chapter there. We'll begin in verse 24, where Jesus tells the crowd... No one can serve two masters. Now remember what my former pastor said. He, he said, whatever has your heart has you. right?" And so you cannot serve two masters. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. He goes on to say, for this reason, that reason being no one can serve two masters, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not this life more than food and the body more than clothing? And this is the same imperative. Jesus' imperative here is the same one that Paul uses in Philippians 4.6. Which demands a question. If Jesus says, do not worry about your life, is it a sin to disobey that? And we would say, yes. He's told us, he's given us clear instruction, do not be worried about your life. It goes on in verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? What do we see here? We see the providence of God at work. The sustaining hand of God. Working out every detail. This is God's care for his creation. Involving his preserving its existence. And meticulously guiding it into his intended end. That's the definition for providence, straight out of biblical doctrine. If you don't have that book, I would ask, why don't you yet have that book? This is God's providence, and we see it clearly articulated by Jesus in verse twenty-six. He goes on in verse twenty-seven. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single life, a single hour to his life? Rather, the answer to that question is no one. No one can. Is worrying about your lifespan sinful? Well, Job declared, he said, since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, that you referring to Yahweh and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass again, referencing Yahweh. David echoes Job somewhat in Psalm 139, 16. He says, the the days that were ordained for me when as yet there were not one of them. And so we know that God has numbered our days and we cannot add not even a single hour to our lives. Rather, David writes in Psalm 90 in verse four, he says, let me know how transient I am. I think this is a good request. He goes on in verse 12 to say, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. This is wisdom. To keep the brevity of our lives ever in view, knowing that God has sovereignly set out the length of each of our lives. And so we are to live each day to the fullest and to the glory of God. And how that's done is described further in each one of those psalms. Jesus goes on to say in verse 28 of Matthew 6, And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the fields grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? In his book, Respectable Sins, Jerry Bridges argues that to worry is to not trust God, to not trust God in the moment. And to worry is to not trust in God's providence, And in that same book, Jerry Bridges argues that often Christians are quite comfortable in what they would refer to as these respectable sins. That it's all right to to worry. It's all right to, to, to stew on things for a time. And that we are perfectly comfortable, we can be perfectly comfortable in that But as our Lord said, this is a a, a matter of faith. He says, you of little faith. He goes on in verse 31. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. And so there's a reference to the common grace of God. But he goes on But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And I really love what Jesus says, particularly in verses 31 and 34 here. You see, he's not actually using the imperative mood here. And you wouldn't pick that up necessarily from the English. But in the Greek, it's abundantly clear. He's speaking in the subjunctive there. Now the era subjunctive carries the same weight as an imperative, so we're still to obey this. But the subjunctive mood always carries with it the sense of something being possible, even being probable in the lives of believers. That means that we can do this. We can live in a way that we do not worry. And this, he says, is even probable in the lives of his disciples. And so they must have been greatly encouraged as they heard this. We need to remember that God is sovereign. Jeremiah wrote, "'Blessed is the man who trusts in God, in the Lord "'and whose trust is the Lord, "'for he will be like a tree planted by the water "'that extends its roots by a stream "'and will not fear when the heat comes.'" but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in the year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. And you'll notice there's a parallel between what Jeremiah says there and what we read in Psalm chapter one. There are many other examples of anxiety in the face of sin, but even how to address that, we see that in the life of David as he describes in Psalm 32 again in Psalm 38 again in Psalm 51 How there are anxieties that arise in him that he recognizes as sin and that he then knows he needs to do something about. He comes before the Lord, he waits upon the Lord. Does that mean that it vanishes in an instant? No. We need to wait on the Lord, even as David describes in those Psalms. But remember, he is in control. And your present and your future circumstances, the peace that comes from trusting in God and acknowledging his sovereignty and trusting in his providence so that you can be anxious for nothing. This is the fourth distinctive of the one whose citizenship is in heaven. Now let's consider the fifth distinctive, also found in verse six, this being the distinct persistence of the Christian. Train your eyes at the text again. Verse six, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul immediately provides for the reader the remedy for all anxiety, the pouring out of one's heart before God. And we see that he gives this in the present imperative. This is a continuous This is to be continuous in the life of the believer. Let it be made known, right? Let your requests be made known. This is the ongoing and daily work of the believer. And Paul uses four terms then to describe the believer's only right response to anxiety. Those being prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, and request. Let's take a look at each of these. Prayer is the means by which a believer petitions God. It's a personal communication that we enjoy as we commune with God. Where the Christian reverently addresses God. Where we come as creature before our creator. Why? Why do we do that? We do that because he has revealed himself to us. And not only has he revealed himself to us, but he's also saved us. And so coming before him reverently, seeking to commune with him is a natural, seems a natural response of the new nature. It's a thoughtful, heartfelt response of the one who has been given a new nature. He is a new creation. Now, Martin Lloyd Jones says that prayer is the highest activity of the human soul. Think about that. The best thing that you can do in your day is to go before the Lord and pray. I remember as I was, as I was um, sharing a devotional, a five-minute devotional in the school that I used to teach in, we'd do that first thing in the morning. I, I would tell students, these are the best words that you hear all day. After this, everything goes downhill. But prayer is the highest activity of the human soul. And another commentator says, it's our openness about our needs before God with a focus not on us, but on what God will do. That's our focus. What will God do with this? And then there's supplication. Supplication is the act of asking God for something, whether for others or for ourselves with great earnestness and with great humility. And so there is a, an attitude that needs to accompany our supplications. Paul models this, you know, supplications for us in Ephesians 1. We read in verse 16 and on, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And then here is this specific supplication, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. He goes on to offer another supplication. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his, of his power toward us who believe? And so we see that He is praying on behalf of others' spiritual needs. But we also know that we can offer supplications for material needs as well. We seek the divine help in times of difficulty, temptation, looking for sanctification, further sanctification, even for the salvation of others. And in all of that, while we do it, we're acknowledging again the sovereignty of God. That's supplication. Then thanksgiving. Our prayers and supplications are the means, but there's this attitude with which we are to pray and offer supplications, and that is with thanksgiving. I like how one commentator, Gordon Fee, describes it. He says it's an explicit acknowledgement of creatureliness and dependence, a recognition that everything comes as a gift. The verbalization before God of his goodness and generosity. That is thanksgiving. It's the expression of appreciation for God's benefits and his blessings. And according to Second Corinthians 4 and verse 15, Thanksgiving is evidence of God's grace. We read Paul say, for all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. And so Thanksgiving is evidence of God's grace in our lives. And then Thanksgiving is also evidence of our contentment, contentment with the benefit and blessing that God gives It's a contentment in God himself, but also a contentment in whatever my God ordains is right for me and for you. That's the contentment. Finding contentment in his reign, in his love, in his protection, in the strength that he provides, in his being ever and imminently present. Finding contentment in his word, Finding contentment in his many provisions, in his healings, in his people, in his deliverance from sin, and in his calling us to active service. But I would say we need to add one to that. We also need to find contentment in his purposes for our suffering, because there is purpose in suffering. And even as we experience times that are outside of our control and face Anxious thoughts. We need to remember to be thankful for the suffering that we may be experiencing. We need to rejoice in the Lord always. And then finally, there's those requests. This refers to those specific things, those very specific things that we're asking for. And so The unrighteous habit, then, would be to not trust God in his providence. But rather, we need to put that off. The unrighteous habit needs to be put off. And the righteous habit of time with the Lord needs to fill that vacuum. You'll remember this hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer, Sweet Hour of Prayer, that calls me from a world of care. And bids me at my Father's throne. Makes all my wants and wishes known. And this is what we need to do. This is the beginning of the cure. The antidote to our anxiety. Those anxious thoughts that we can have. To first come before the Lord in prayer. And so we've seen... The priority, the poise, the perspective, the peace and persistence that make Christians distinct in this world. And now finally, let's consider this pledge. This pledge so that we know that we'll be able to stand firm in the Lord. And I would say this, if praying to God is the medicine cabinet that you go to when wrought with anxious thoughts... Then with that door flung wide open, the healing balm is found in that bottle of promise inside. Let's take a look at this distinct pledge in verse seven, where Paul writes, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is the peace of God? Well let's break that down a bit. First of all, it's a divine peace. It's a peace that is sourced only in God. And Jesus said to his disciples in John 14:27 as he spent time in the upper room with them just before going to the cross, he said this, "Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Nor do Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. These were were Jesus' words to his disciples. The peace that Jesus gives is a peace that remains. It's an abiding peace. And why wouldn't it? Jesus is the Lord of peace. We see this in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. 2 Thessalonians 3 and 16. And in Ephesians 2 and 14, Paul writes again, For he himself is our peace. And so he is the Lord of peace, as he himself is our peace. And it's no wonder then that Paul would write to the Colossians, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And may the peace of Christ rule in our hearts as well. As God provides that, supplies that for us, not only is this a divine peace, but it's a transcending peace. It goes further. It rises above all else. It eclipses. It's beyond. It's in a class of its own. It surpasses the human mind's ability. It surpasses the human mind's ability to understand or, or even reason through it. And so it's a transcending peace. As he says, it surpasses our comprehension. Then finally, it's also an active peace. And here Paul uses a military term. And this military term really means to protect or to keep by guarding. And so he provides for us a word picture. That word picture of garrisons, stations, strategically to protect a a city. This is what he means by using the word guard. The peace of God brings this conscious calm to us. It's a divine serenity. It sedates anxious thoughts amidst life's uncertainties. And it stands watch over us. Even as Paul says that it will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So it's divine, it's transcending, and it's ever active. And we can be very thankful for that. But I think a final point needs to be made here. And that is this. Well, before I do that, maybe let me set up some scaffold support before I get to this final point. Because I believe that, as I've said earlier, everyone experiences anxiousness. None are immune. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter your background, who you are. Doesn't matter what station in life you have, none are immune to this. And in fact, being finite and unable to forecast the future that God is sovereign over, it's no wonder that from time to time we can feel anxiety and that that would even come quite powerfully as we find ourselves very caught off guard. Angst builds over financial instability. We get apprehensive over a difficult road that's ahead of us. The soul is disquieted because of the world news. And I would say in our world, anxiety is is certainly driven, it's multiplied um, over and over again just by what we ingest in media. It's, It's incredible. Doubt arises over maybe a church's stance. Dread ensues over a government's decision, a new law that's been put into place. Misery comes from losing employment. Misgivings come from not being able to see a way through a circumstance or situation. Nervousness, maybe over an approaching meeting. Panic over not being able to afford something. You're restless while you wait on the Lord. Suffering because of a friend hasn't behaved as a friend. Maybe suffering because a spouse hasn't behaved as a spouse. There's uncertainty surrounding a recent diagnosis. Perhaps your hearts are troubled by your unsaved children. There's an ongoing list, a long and lengthy list of reasons why people experience anxiety have these anxious moments. And it's no doubt that one's circumstances can bring on these anxious thoughts, even to varying degrees. And so how one person deals with it is not going to be the same as another. But we need to remember what was said, even from this pulpit last week, as we considered the definition of joy. Joy allows one to see beyond a particular any particular event to the sovereign Lord who stands above all events and ultimately has control over them. And we notice often in scripture, joy and peace are linked together. But Paul says here, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so that's the scaffold support for this final point That I would want to submit to you, and that is this. At its core, anxiety is a spiritual issue, it's a spiritual problem. And therefore, the need to have the seat of one's emotions, the heart as Paul refers to it, and one's mind guarded by the peace of God is vital. We know that the spiritual battlefield is the mind. That's where the war is waged. And so we need to constantly be taking captive our thoughts. And we need to constantly be going before the Lord then. Confessing our anxieties, our anxious moments. And confessing that he is the God to be trusted. That we can trust in his providence. Even as he's working all things together for good in our lives. Does he not? And so anxiety is not a medical condition, it's not physiological. Yes, a medical condition can arise, uh, can arise anxiety in a person. So anxiety can follow a medical diagnosis. And yes, anxiety can even bring physical suffering. So as one continues in their anxiety, that can certainly bring physical suffering even to the point of requiring some medical intervention. And we know that the reason for that is because of the human constitution. We are both spirit and body. We are both spiritual and physical beings. We are immaterial and material beings. And we are so inseparably woven together that you cannot separate one from the other. You cannot simply suffer spiritually while not suffering physically nor will you suffer physically without it impacting your spiritual being and so your whole person is impacted that's a a biblical anthropology and so we must notice that the effects are one to another most always I would say And so the anxious Christian's first stop is before the Father's throne of grace to pursue and to receive that promised peace that comes through persistent prayer in his perfect timing. And we've seen six things that distinguish Christians in this world. Those being the priority of rejoicing in the Lord always. That gentle poise that we are to have before all men. The perspective that the Lord is near, the peace of being anxious for nothing, the persistence of thankful prayer when anxiety encroaches, and the pledge of a real peace that guards the hearts and the minds of us because of our union with Christ. It's because of our union with Christ that we enjoy this peace. But let me make one final distinction and for this we would go to first peter 5 7 where peter writes cast all your anxiety on him but what does he go on to say because he cares for you that's a distinction as well he cares for us he uniquely cares for his people for his children in a way other than unbelievers. And so why wouldn't we cast our anxiety upon him knowing that he cares for us and he also then sets the model for us that we would care for others, come alongside them in their struggles with anxiety and that we would be ever pointing them to prayer, to Get on their knees before the Lord to confess, to seek um, further sanctification and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for these, these distinctions that you have given forth in your word. And we thank you that there is a peace that passes, surpasses all understanding, that guides both our minds and our hearts in Christ Jesus when we come before you with prayer, with thankful prayer. And so we thank you for this remedy that you've offered to us. Well, Father, I pray that we wouldn't wait, that we wouldn't put off waiting to come before you with our cares, our concerns, our worries but that we would always be reminded that you do care for us, that you have loved us and have saved us. You've demonstrated your great love for us, even that while we were yet sinners, you sent Christ to die for us. And so thank you for that. Thank you for being ever available, that we can come before the God of creation and make our requests known to you. Thank you for that wonderful provision. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we come now to the Lord's Supper. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we celebrate the Lord's table to... Remember, and through it, we proclaim the Lord's death. But also, this is a time of communing with Christ, whereby our participation commemorates the eternal and spiritual deliverance that's provided to us through the new covenant. It's important to ask this question, who is to participate in this meal? What are the requirements Well, first of all, you must be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. To his followers, Jesus gave this command. He said, do this in remembrance of me. This is uniquely to his disciples. And if you've come to know Christ personally by repenting and believing on him for salvation, then this is a meal for you. We remember that our salvation came at a massive cost. It cost our Lord his life. His death was required so that we would be reconciled to God. And so this is also then a time of quiet and sober reflection. Remembering that the broken bread and the poured wine symbolized the grim reality of the cross, where Christ gave his body and shed his blood on our behalf. And as a believer, we must approach this supper having dealt with and confessed known sin. That means dealing with sin with one another where there is, and also coming before God because ultimately all sin is first and foremost against him. And each person is accountable for him or herself, for your participation. Now scripture commands, but a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so an examination is, is, is necessary. And yet, this is a time of celebration because we anticipate with great joy his return. And doing this continually until he returns. And so let me pray for this meal. Well, Father, we come before you thankful for your provision of a redeemer in our Lord Jesus Christ. For his willingly going to the cross on our behalf to pay the penalty for our sin. And we acknowledge the bread and the cup. Representing that broken body sacrificed on our behalf, the spilled blood that granted us the forgiveness of sin. And so Father, we ask that we would that you would expose in us sin that we need to come clean of. And Father, that you would then forgive us of that. Thank you for this meal. Thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.